our love, that your love toward us is real and it's true and it's yes and amen. And because you love us so deeply, because you pursued us and your love is so relentless, Father, we cannot but help to love you as well. And Lord, if we are loving you and you are loving us, how can we love this world who seeks to destroy us and to remove us from our status in you? And so help us to understand today how we can be in the world but not of the world and live life together well. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of just uh, linking us back to what we did last week, so by way of review, we, um, we looked at the subject of, of how do we not love the world? How do we be in the world but not of the world? And we said we're going to look at four questions. The first two questions that we looked at last week was what does it mean to not love the world and also why shouldn't I love the world? Now the first question, why, uh, why, what does it mean to not love the world? We say, hey, that, that means to not love the world systems, to not give our heart or find our hope and joy in the systems of this world that uh, are established to prevent us from loving God. They're, they're against who God is. They're against his word. So if we love those things, they will draw us away. Now, why shouldn't we love the world? Or why shouldn't I love the world? Well, we looked at the fact that uh, the world is transient. And because the world is transient, that means that God is actively destroying the world. Why? because the world seeks to destroy us and to unseat us from our union and communion with Christ. So that's what we looked at last week. This week, we're going to look at the next two questions. How do we prevent ourselves from loving the world? And then we're going to close by looking, what should I love instead? What should we actively love instead? All right, so without any other further ado, let's look at the questions before us. How do we prevent ourselves from loving the world. Well, look at our passage. Verse number 17 tells us. The Bible says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, um, you know, from a standpoint, how do we prevent ourselves from loving the world? John tells us, by doing the will of God. That's how we prevent, prevent ourselves from loving the world. Now, um, who, is the, who is the whoever here? Right? Some people always question, well, who's the whoever? Well, the whoever is Christians. Christians are the ones that are uniquely set apart to do the will of God. You as a Christian have been given the status to do God's will. And there are three ways that John says that you are uniquely gifted to do the will of God. Uh, notice the first one in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. John says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one for another, one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So how are we uniquely gifted to do the will of God? Because our sins have been cleansed. We've been given a new nature. So no longer do we just have the flesh doing its own will, but the word of God says that upon uh, us becoming saved and having our sins washed away, washed away, we are now given a new nature by the Holy Spirit. And so this tug of war that happens in our heart between the flesh and the spirit, we have the spirit here uh, dragging us and pulling us toward God's will, and sometimes the flesh does that as well. 
But you as a Christian, no longer are you incapable of doing God's will, but you are capable of doing God's will because you have your, the Holy Spirit and because your sin has been washed away and cleansed away. Sin prohibits us from doing the will of God. But now that our sins have been cleansed, now that we have the power of the Holy Spirit, God says you are able to do his will. So praise the Lord for that. Now, here's the second way you are uniquely gifted to do the will of God. It's found in, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verse number 3. John says this, By this we know that we have known him if we keep his commandments. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Nance, how, do, how does that help us to uniquely know the will, I mean, do the will of God? Well, it's because we know God. We know him. And not only the fact that we know him, but because we know him, we are able to know his will. And because we know God and we're able to know his will, the Bible says we know what our purpose is in life. We know our purpose in life, and that is to do the will of God, to serve God, and to do the things that he has called us to do. I'll never forget this hit home one day. I was watching The Little Mermaid uh, with my children. Uh, yes, I watched The Little Mermaid. You know, I have four kids, and, and all we watch is Disney films and, and other films like that. I don't have a choice. It is what it is. But one day, I was watching The Little Mermaid, and if you remember the story, Ariel goes to the seagull, and she brings two trinkets that she found. And, and the seagull has no idea what these things are. And so she shows him a fork, right? And she said, and, he, and the seagull takes the fork and says, oh, this fork is for combing your hair. And so he does this here. And then she brings him a, a pipe, and, and the seagull has no idea what these things are. And so he says, oh, oh, this is a music instrument. So he starts playing a music instrument. Uh, Scott, you can use a pipe uh, to play a musical instrument. I don't know, perhaps. But, but she did an unsuccessful job. Now, later on in the film, what was funny is that as she's meeting with the prince and they're eating, she sees this fork and she starts twirling her hair and, and everyone thinks that's incredibly funny. Now, here's the thing. Here's the point that I want to make. That might be incredibly funny uh, for a Disney film, but it's actually not that funny when it comes to real life. It's not that funny when we see people striving after this world and trying to find purpose and meaning in this world when that's not what this world was designed to do. All of us know the first uh, catechism, um, you know, in terms of our purpose in life, um, you know, how can we glorify God? Well, we glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose, right? That's, that's what we are designed to do, is to bring God's glory. But so often we see people walking around in the world that, that don't know their purpose. They don't know why they're here. They think that their purpose is to make a lot of money, or they think their purpose is to enjoy pleasure and have fun and do all of these things, but yet they are completely unsatisfied by the things of this world. And I think Augustine is right when he says that our hearts will find no rest until they find their rest in Christ, because it's in Christ that we find the purpose of what we're created for. It's in Christ that we have that union and communion and we're able to know him well and therefore know what it is we have been uniquely set aside to do. And if you do not know Christ, you know, you might say, well, my purpose is to teach or my purpose is to do this or my purpose is to do that. That might be what you do for a profession. But that's not the ultimate purpose that God has for you. The ultimate purpose is for you to be able to glorify God and enjoy him as you do the things that he has called you to do. 
And so for the Christian, we uniquely know our purpose in life because we know him. Notice the third thing very quickly. The third thing is this. John says in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, we have overcome the evil one. In verse number 14, um, he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is how you and I are able to do the will of God, uniquely gifted to do the will of God, because we can overcome the devil. The devil is, uh, the devil, his whole existence is to get us to not do the will of God. What's interesting to me is if you look at the temptation of Christ, the Bible says that Christ was taken and led by the Spirit, and he was tempted, and all the areas that Christ was tempted in goes back to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When Christ is shown all the kingdoms of, of the world, he's being tempted by the lust of the eyes. When he finds himself on a pinnacle and uh, the devil says, hey, throw yourself down, he's been tempted by the pride of life. When he's asked to uh, turn stone into bread, well, he's been tempted by the lust of the flesh. And so the devil is trying to get him to not do the will of God, which is uh, to start his earthly ministry and to die for the sins of their people, for, for God's people, and to be raised again. The devil is trying to thwart his ability to do that. And over and over again, Christ stays the course. Christ relies on the power of the Spirit. He relies on the power of the Word. And he uses prayer and fasting to be able to thwart the will uh, or the designs of the devil to get him from doing the will of God. And the same is true for us. One of the impediments to doing God's will is this one fact, that the devil, <clears throat> the devil seeks um, to come in and to uh, prevent us from doing the will of God. Now, moving on from there, that's how you and I are uniquely gifted to do the will of God. But I want you to notice something else. What does it mean to do the will of God? What does it mean to do the will of God? Now, I went to a Christian school. And, and if you are in a Christian school or just any Christian area or arena at any time, people talk about doing the will of God all the time. Like, you know, we need to do God's will. We need to, we need to make sure we're pursuing God's will. You know, if somebody says, hey, are you coming to uh, the movies with us in two weeks? Like, oh, you know, if, if God wills and the creek don't rise. You know, we you always use these statements about God's will. And so I did it too. I talked about doing God's will and serving God until one day I woke up and I realized, wait a minute, I have no clue what it means to do God's will. I just didn't. And so I, I went to a professor, he was pretty knowledgeable, and I said, hey, what, what does the Bible mean when it says doing the will of God? How does that look like? And he says, Dennis, you know what? You should look at the Puritans. The Puritans were obsessed with God's will, and they have a very robust theology um, of God's will. And so I did. And I was fascinated by what I learned in the Puritans. The, first of all, the Puritans said that there are three aspects of God's will that all of us need to know. The first one is God's decretive will. Those are the things that God has decreed to happen. So one could be, let there be light. God has decreed that to happen, and it happened. But then they said, within the decretive will of God, there's the secret will of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, 29. Those are the secret things that belong only to God. These are the things that God has ordained that we not yet know about. And so the Puritans would say, well, you know, um, is President Trump 
going to pardon Tiger King. I don't know. That's in the future. I have no idea if he's going to do that or not. Or um, when are we going to be let out of lockdown? I don't know when that's going to happen, but God knows that's going to happen. That's a part of God's secret will. But the other thing is God's permissive will. God's permissive will. In other words, these are the things where God permits to happen. A famous example of this is our sin. God permits sin to happen. It doesn't that he's necessarily causing it to happen or a party to it. He just permits it to happen. But here's the third one. The third one really caught my attention. And they talked about God's preceptive will. These are the things that God has written in his word. The things that you and I, uh, that God has given you and I to do that we absolutely know that he wants us to do it. Here's what the Puritan said. The Puritan said that so often you and I get caught up in the secret will of God. The things that God has not revealed to us. So we want to know what's going to happen in the future. We want to know um, if this is going to happen or that is going to happen. And we become obsessed with the parts of God's will that we don't know anything about. When I um, did uh, college ministry, uh, uh, the college students that I worked with, they were obsessed with three things. Uh, When they graduated from college, they wanted to know what job they were going to land, where they were going to live, and who they were going to marry, right? And it was all these things in the future that were beyond their control. And I often told them, I said, listen, God has given you a set of things you can do right now in your word. He's called you to live pure. He's called you to work hard. He's called you to focus daily on, your spirit, on the exercise of your faith. Those are the things that you ought to be doing. And so the Puritans would say, in doing God's preceptive will, doing the things that he has written in his word, God's declarative secret will will become, a decretive secret will will become known to you. As you are faithful daily in doing the things that God has called you to do, then he would reveal to you the things that he has not yet uh, shown you at that point. And so it is, John is saying here, that you and I have the ability to know God's will because it's written in his word. And God's will for us is to not love the world. God's will for us is to do the things that he has called us to do. And that's a powerful reminder in the text. In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter tells us we should be obsessed with doing the will of God. 1 Peter 4.2 says this, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You and I should be obsessed with doing the things that God has called us to do in his word and not be focused on the things that you and I have absolutely no control over. Listen, there are many of you wondering, Pastor Dennis, when is this lockdown going to end? I do not know. I wish I knew. I wish I did. But you know what? Tomorrow when you wake up, God is calling you to be the best husband you can be, the best wife you can be, the best, um, you know, the, the best father you can be, and on and on and on. God is calling you to do those things, so we need to be about the business of doing those things. And whether or not the lockdown ends in a, in a week or two weeks, whether it's safe to go out, I don't know. I don't know the answer to those questions, but I do know what God is calling you to do right now. He is calling you to be obedient to the things that he has written in his word, and therefore, these are the things that we can do. Now, what are the benefits for doing the will of God? That's what John talks about here. Notice again in verse number 17. He says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
The benefit of doing the will of God, of doing what God has written in his word, is that we will abide forever. In the same way, uh, John is telling us that God is going to put an end to the, tra- to, to the things of this world, that these, the things of this world are transitory. He's telling us that the contrast of that is those that do the will of God will abide forever. Now, there's some of you that are saying, well, Pastor Dennis, are you trying to say that Christians are the only people that can uh, have a goal and perform it? That Christians are the only people that can keep themselves from the things of this world? There are a whole host of people that do a better job, even than some Christians, at, at, at keeping themselves from sin, quote unquote. And you're absolutely right. In fact, the New Testament scholar um, Yarbrough said it, uh, said it this way. He said, after studying the Stoics and the ancient Greek philosophers, they had a very robust understanding of keeping themselves away from the trappings of this world. In fact, there are many people in our day, the minimalist, they, they talk a lot about not being caught up in the things of this world. So how is it that you're saying now that the Christian is uniquely gifted to do the will of God, uniquely gifted to stay away from the world, and now have this benefit of eternal life? Well, here's what Yarbrough says, and I think it's so, it's so good. He says this, that even though, even though unbelievers can keep themselves away from the world and not do those things that can cause harm to them, there's a huge difference between them and the Christian. And Yarbrough says that, If you look at an unbeliever and them keeping themselves away from the world, he is not sure why they're doing it. In other words, they can have a reason for doing it, but he says he's unclear about why they're actually doing it. And and I think it's brilliant. Here's what Yarbrough is saying, in other words. He's saying that if an unbeliever keeps himself from the world, what benefit is that if there's nothing after this world. In other words, if an unbeliever rejects this world, if an unbeliever says, listen, there's no such thing as heaven and hell, there's nothing beyond this world, why is it that you're keeping yourself from the things of this world? He goes on to say that, listen, ancient pagans were more intellectually honest than unbelievers today. The ancient pagans had as their symbol an hourglass and a skull because they knew that there was nothing beyond this world. And their motto was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so for the ancient pagans, they didn't, they didn't pretend to have a wellness plant. You know, they didn't do uh, yoga and eat quinoa. What for? Because if there's nothing beyond this world, why are you living for this world? And you should be as heathenistic as you possibly can, because there's nothing after this world. And so here's, here's what he says. He says, look. Either you act like there's nothing beyond this world and indulge in every pleasure you can, or you act like there is something beyond this world and do the will of God. And that that is what's before the unbeliever. If you do not believe in Christianity, if you don't believe in the spirit world, if you don't believe that there's anything beyond this world, then and you're still acting morally, Yarbrough says, you know what? You're being inconsistent with your belief. Because your belief says there's nothing beyond this world, therefore you should be living a pagan life. You should be living it up. You should be indulging in every sin possible. But if you're sitting there and saying, you know what? That doesn't sound right to me, then you're closer to Christianity than you know. 
Because the Christian says, hey, there is something beyond this world. And because there's something beyond this world, I have to act morally in this world because the one that acts morally, the one that does the will of God, yes, we will abide forever. Now, however, there's another aspect to this, and that's Christians who act as if there is nothing beyond this world. If we claim to know Christ and we claim to know that, that Christ has died for us and he's gone to prepare a place for us, then we should be acting as if there is for a world to come. And we should be pursuing the will of God in the midst of that. That's, what, that's at the heart of what John is saying, that the one that does the will of God abides forever. And if you do not know Christ, but yet you still find yourself acting morally in this world, chances are you believe the gospel. Because the gospel inherently says that there's something beyond this world, and therefore I have to act in accordance with that. And what you need to do is stop uh, finding or pursuing after your will and instead pursue the will of God. Now, not only do we see um, all of what I had just said, how do, we, how do we keep ourselves from loving the world, but also what should I love instead? What should we be loving instead? You know, Christians are always accused of being people who are good at saying what we don't believe in or what we don't love, but we don't, we're not as good as talking about what we should love instead. So here's what John says to that. John says that what you and I should be loving instead is the church, is the church. Now, you look at this text and you say, well, Pastor Dennis, that's nowhere in this text. <laughs> John, John, nowhere in this text says we should be loving the church. Here is how I get to that. Remember, John says in chapter 2, verse 7 through 11, that you and I, this new commandment, is that we love one another. And the context there is that we should be loving the person in the church, those of us that are in the church. And if we're supposed to be loving those in the church, then John is saying, in essence, we ought to be loving the church, as the church is the people of God. Now, in our day, it's fashionable for us to say, hey, I'll take Jesus, but I'll leave the church. I'll love Jesus, but I won't love the church. I'll, I'll serve Jesus, but I won't serve, serve the church. Or I'll, I'll go all out for Jesus, but I, I don't have to uh, go all out for the church. The only problem with that is that's not consistent with God's word. And here's why. Do you realize that the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ gave himself for the church? That's Paul's point in the book of Ephesians. In fact, so powerful was this imagery that Paul says that husbands should love their wives even as Christ gave himself up for the church, for her. So here's what I'm trying to say. If Christ came to earth for the church, lived a sinless life to redeem the church, died on the cross for the church, rose again for the church, and is living uh, an intercessory life uh, right now for the church, then we as God's people should be loving the church. Now I know, I get it. The church is full of messy people that do messed up things. The church is full of people that are, are hypocrites and liars, people that are unpleasant, people that say mean things and do mean things. I know, I get it. But you know what? Christ still died for the church. He still died for his bride. And you cannot say that you love Christ, but you don't love his bride. That's inconsistent. 
What God is calling us to do is to leave off our love for the world and embrace our love for his people, the church. And I know that's not easy. I'm a pastor. I can tell you it's not easy to be passionate and and in love with the church, especially if you've been hurt by the church. But I'm telling you this. We don't have a choice in the matter. If Christ died for the church and he loves the church, then we ought to be sacrificial toward the church as well and to give of our effort and love for the church as well. And so that's what John is calling us to do. He's saying, listen, do not love the world. Cast off uh, our love for the world, but instead let's embrace our love for the church. Let's embrace our love for the people of God. Will it be difficult? Yes, but he's given you of his Holy Spirit to be able to do it. Ask God for the love that you need to love his people because he loves them. And by the way, aren't we the hands and feet of God on earth? If we're not loving the church, who will? If we're not providing for the needs of the church, who will? If we're not there for our brothers and sisters in Christ, who will be? Our love for the church is not optional. That's what God has called us to do. And so let me encourage you today. Yes, the church is messy. We've talked about that. And you know what? It'll it'll stay messy until Christ returns. But aren't we called as God's people to look past that messiness? If Christ can look past that messiness and say, yes, you're messy, you're flawed, you're this, you're that, but I love you anyway, we as God's people should do the same. Even when we get hurt or become discouraged or become despondent at the church, please remember that that is the bride of Christ. And we're called to love her and to treat her well and give her all to her because God is redeeming her. Amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so